Hey guys, I'm Chastity, and you're listening to the Ancient Conspiracies Podcast, where we connect the origins of some of the most popular conspiracy theories to biblical history. Well, welcome back to episode two. Today, we're going to dive deeper into the history of the Book of Enoch, but before I get started, I wanted to share a little bit about how I personally was introduced to the book. So years ago, I was working in the ministry, and a friend of mine had subscribed to a magazine called Prophecy in the News. We used to get together on a daily basis on our lunch break and talk about what was happening in the news and Bible prophecy. It just so happens that that year, 2009, J.R. Church, the founder of Prophecy in the News, was publishing portions of the Book of Enoch in each month's edition, along with a commentary to help make it more understandable. In fact, the following year, he went on to compile all of this information and actually publish it in book form. But of course, by then, my friend had collected the entire year's worth of magazines, and she was kind enough to give them to me. I had never heard of the Book of Enoch, and I confess, reading it for the first time was a bit like reading a Shakespearean play. But the commentary was gold. And as I began reading about the fallen angels, the giants, the evil spirits that remained after the flood, and Enoch's amazing insight into the end times, it's like the Bible came alive to me. Now in future episodes, I plan to go chapter to chapter and share some of the nuggets from the book of Enoch for you to hear for yourself. But in today's episode, we're just going to focus on the history of the book of Enoch because I feel like it's really imperative to lay a solid foundation and really connect this book to scripture. In my opinion, this is the key piece of biblical history that helps clarify so much of what's happened throughout history and what's coming in the future. So with that said, let's dive in. Other than what was written in the book of Enoch, we actually know very little about Enoch. As I mentioned in last week, in the book of Genesis, we learned that he was the seventh generation from Adam. He was also the father of Methuselah, and he was the great-grandfather of Noah. He lived 365 years and then was translated alive into heaven, basically the first person to ever be raptured. In Hebrews 11, we're told that it was by faith that Enoch was translated and didn't experience death, quote, for he had this testimony that he pleased God, unquote. There's only one other person in scripture who received the same rapture by God, the prophet Elijah. But what's interesting is that we're told in Hebrews chapter 9 that it is appointed for all men to die once. Yet, since neither of these men experienced death as required by Scripture, it's actually speculated that both Enoch and Elijah may return and become the two witnesses spoken of in end times prophecy. Now, I've always heard that these two witnesses are likely Moses and Elijah. And I think this comes from the fact that both Moses and Elijah appeared during the transfiguration of Jesus. It may also be because of the description of what these two witnesses have the ability to do. They have the power to shut the heavens, which was a gift that Elijah had, and to turn water into blood, which was a gift that Moses had. But regardless of who the two witnesses are, I found it fascinating that Enoch has been circulated as a potential candidate. So at the time of Jude, among Jewish spiritual literature was included the canon of Ezra. The canon of Ezra is what we now know as the Old Testament. Ezra, the prophet, compiled the Old Testament books, but he leaves out the book of Enoch, even though it was respected and considered an important source of information. So when Jude comes along, the brother of Jesus, he actually quotes from the book of Enoch in his writings, and this cements the book of Enoch in canonic scripture. 
Jude chapter 1 verses 14 through 15 is almost an identical copy of Enoch chapter 1 verse 9. But what's even more incredible about this reference in Jude is that it's prophesying the coming of Christ with ten thousands of his saints to enforce judgment. But if Jude is quoting Enoch, then Enoch prophesied the second coming of Christ before the flood ever happens. And then it was quoted by the brother of Jesus in the New Testament. So let that sink in. This is how long the plan was in place. The moment that these fallen angels began to implement their plan of deception, God's plan was already in place, and Enoch records them both. Now, shortly thereafter, the book of Enoch becomes lost until the 18th century. You're going to see a pattern here of it disappearing and reappearing throughout history. In 1773, after 1,500 years, Scottish explorer James Bruce discovers the Book of Enoch while traveling across Ethiopia. He obtains three copies of it. One was given to the Louvre in Paris, one was given to Oxford University in London, and the last one he kept for himself. He's actually quoted as saying that among the articles he collected was a very beautiful and magnificent copy of the prophecies of Enoch, standing immediately before the Book of Job. Now, the book of Job is considered the oldest Bible in the Protestant canon. Job is said to have lived somewhere between Noah and Abraham, so the book of Enoch being set immediately prior to Job would be chronologically sound. Now, by the early 1900s, the book of Enoch makes another comeback. There was a very popular Bible in the U.S. that was published by Oxford University Press, which was the most important publishing house of the English-speaking world. It was an edited version of the King James Bible written by Cyrus Schofield, who was the father of dispensationalism. Basically, the idea that God divided history into ages and how Israel has a separate destiny from the church. So at the turn of the century, the Schofield Bible was hugely popular, and along with it, people were purchasing the Book of Enoch as well, all from Oxford University Press. In 1947, the Book of Enoch resurfaces again when the Dead Sea Scrolls are discovered. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls are the oldest Jewish copies of the Bible written in Hebrew. They were actually written before the time of Jesus, possibly by the Essenes. The Essenes were a Jewish sect who left Jerusalem because they felt like the priesthood had become corrupt. There becomes a group within the priesthood who fights against this corruption, and this is the story of the Maccabees. The priesthood eventually falls back into corruption, and the descendants of Zadok, who we suspect to be the Essenes, leave and move to caves around the Dead Sea. They began copying these books to preserve them. They believed that the Messiah would eventually come, and they wanted to offer them as a gift for the library of his kingdom. So it's interesting that the book of Enoch was among the books they felt important to preserve. So even though the book itself isn't included in the canon of Scripture, there are breadcrumbs that trace back to it all throughout Scripture. As I mentioned in last week's episode, the book of Enoch tells the story of 200 fallen angels who descend onto Mount Hermon, mate with the women of earth, and create giant offspring. The story is briefly mentioned in Genesis 6. But yet the giants go on to be referenced throughout the Old Testament, many of which likely intermarried with the Canaanites, which is why there are so many interesting names in the Canaanite genealogy. The Anakim, the Rephaim, the Zamzumim, and then of course Enoch references the Nephilim. When the Israelites finally reached the Promised Land, 
Scriptures say that there were two giant kings they had to first defeat, King Og of Bashan and King Sihon. Og was the last survivor of the Rephaim. We're told in Deuteronomy that his bed was made of iron and was more than 13 feet long. His destruction is mentioned in Psalms as one of the great victories for the nation of Israel. The book of Amos refers to Og as the Amorite, whose height was like the height of the cedars and whose strength was like that of the oaks. And in Numbers, we see the Israelite spies return after scouting out the promised land and tell Joshua that the Nephilim were there and that they looked like grasshoppers compared to them. Coincidentally, the kingdoms of both Og and Sihon were located around the base of Mount Hermon, the very mountain where Enoch says the fallen angels descended, still hanging around their historical stomping ground. And here's another interesting connection. In the book of Enoch, all of the sins of the fallen angels are attributed to their leader, Azazel, who God commands to be bound deep within the desert and await judgment. In Leviticus, on the Day of Atonement, Aaron is told to cast lots on two goats. One will be sacrificed as an offering to the Lord, and the other will be used to atone for all of the sins of the children of Israel. It was to be taken into the desert and driven off a cliff as a scapegoat. Now, some translations say as Azazel. Nowhere in scripture is the name Azazel found except this verse. But the reference to Azazel comes straight from the book of Enoch, corroborating that both Moses and Aaron knew the history. As I mentioned earlier, the book of Jude not only offers a direct quote from the book of Enoch, but he also references the fallen angels. Jude chapter 1 verses 6 through 7 says, quote, And the angels, who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In like manner, Sodom and Gomorrah gave themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, unquote. So if you are in any way familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were consumed with homosexuality. And this is the general interpretation of this passage. However, it's interesting that Jude connects both of these stories together. Both are identified in the context of fornicating with strange flesh. The angels abandoned their dwelling place for it. In like manner, Sodom and Gomorrah gave themselves over to it as well. Now, in Greek, the term strange flesh has been variously interpreted. It could refer to the homosexual practices of the Sodomites, or it could refer to the flesh of another species. And this brings us full circle to the concept of angels mating with humans, being the central theme in both stories, and possibly why Jude connects them. After all, the men that Lot had to barricade inside his home for protection from the Sodomites were angels. And probably one of the most interesting references in scripture to these fallen angels from the book of Enoch is in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19. Quote, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive in the spirit, he went and preached to the spirits in prison who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, unquote. Yes, 
Peter actually says that when Christ died, his spirit went to preach to these fallen angels from the days of Noah who were bound in hell. Which makes sense since Ephesians 4.9 tells us that he descended into hell after his death, likely to obtain the keys to hell and conquer it since Christ himself says this in the book of Revelations. And if that wasn't evidence enough, here's a few more interesting tidbits to prove that the book of Enoch was widely known and shared throughout history. Clement, the bishop of Rome and a personal friend of the Apostle Paul, along with Barnabas, who accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey, both quote from the book of Enoch in their writings. And listen to this. According to the book of Enoch, after all this corruption happens on earth, God sends out his angels to correct the situation. And the angels he is said to have sent are Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, and Uriel. Now, two of these names are common names. We're all familiar with Michael and Gabriel. But the others can't seem to be verified anywhere in Scripture. But there's a Jewish tradition here that might actually be able to shed some light on this. In the book of Genesis, chapter 18, verse 1, When God and the two angels come to visit Abraham in the plains of Mamre, Jewish tradition believes that one of the two angels was Raphael, because Raphael means healing, and Abraham had just been circumcised. So this verifies that the angelic names listed by Enoch may actually have accuracy. Another thing to note is that the names listed all end with L, E-L, Mikael, Gabriel, Raphael, Uriel. El is the biblical Hebrew name of God. All of the names and places in the book of Enoch are consistent with the Hebrew alphabet. None are compatible with later languages such as Sumerian, which coincidentally is considered the oldest language on earth. This shows not only the antiquity of the Hebrew alphabet predating Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, but may also verify that Hebrew is the language of heaven. And just to drive this idea home, in the book of Enoch chapter 12, Enoch is called the scribe, meaning that he was entrusted with the use of the alphabet by which he could write his thoughts and teach others to read and write as well. Now, though we assume that Adam and Seth, both alive at the time, could also read and write, only Enoch appears to have been born the title of scribe. The book of Jubilees actually verifies this, claiming that Enoch was the first to teach men to read and write what became known as the Hebrew language, the language used in heaven. The following is a dissertation on the Hebrew alphabet, published in London in 1767. I'll post the name of the dissertation in the description of today's episode, but I'm going to summarize it since it's a bit hard to follow because it also includes a quote from Alexander the Great inside of it. So let's start with the dissertation. Quote, in Syria and Mesopotamia are said to be some of the ancient books of the Zabians, which they pretend to be the patriarch Seth's. The Arabic writers say that Seth was the inventor of writing letters and showed them in the Hebrew tongue. If the account that is given of Canaan, the grandson of Seth, could be credited, it would not only prove the use of letters in those early times, but that Hebrew letters were used. And this is also the account sent by Alexander the Great when in India to his master Aristotle, unquote. 
Now, before I move on to the quote from Alexander the Great, I want to clarify that the Canaan being spoken of here is not the leader of the Canaanites. It's a different person and a different spelling. I just wanted to clarify that. Now, let's look at this quote from the writings of Alexander the Great to Aristotle, claiming that the use of the Hebrew alphabet was possibly the language used before the flood. Quote, when I came to such a place in India, the natives told me that they had with them the sepulchre of an ancient king that ruled over all the world, whose name was Canaan, the son of Enos, who foreseeing that God would bring a flood upon the earth, wrote his prophecy of it on the tables of stone, and they are here. The writing is Hebrew writing, unquote. So now the dissertation continues, quote, Enoch, the seventh of Adam, delivered out the prophecy referred to by the Apostle Jude. The Jews make mention of a writing of his in their ancient book of Zohar, and in the Targum of Jonathan he's called the Great Scribe. And several of the Christian fathers, Tertullian and others, speak of a book of his as authentic. The Arabic writers tell us of pyramids and pillars erected by him, on which he engraved the arts and instruments of them, and some writers ascribe the invention of letters and the writing of books to him." Unquote. Now, the Targum of Jonathan was basically the Western interpretation of the Torah, and I find it fascinating that this dissertation of the Hebrew alphabet written in 1767 tracks down the history of the Hebrew alphabet through Syria, Mesopotamia, the Zohar, Alexander the Great, and even early Christian fathers such as Tertullian, all of which point to Seth as the inventor of the alphabet and Enoch as the scribe who engraved history on pillars of stone prior to the flood and that the language used was verifiably Hebrew. So could these tablets have been erected and after the floodwaters resided, they remained and were rediscovered? Or were they tablets that were carried aboard the ark? Well, I don't think anyone can know for sure, but when the French were excavating in the city of Nineveh, the last great capital of the Assyrian Empire in northern Iraq, they discovered the great library of King Ashurbanipal. This great last king of the Assyrians had collected over 25,000 tablets. And on one of these tablets, Ashurbani Paul states that he is blessed because the God of the scribes has given him the knowledge to read the enigmatic writings written on the stone tablets from the days before the flood. This could be verification that Enoch's writings were originally on stone tablets that were carried aboard the ark. And one last note on Enoch being the first scribe of God. This is a clip that I listened to a year or so ago, and I'm not going to mention the gentleman's name because I'm going to totally butcher it, but he's from Think Again Productions. He creates content on UFOs and angels and the Nephilim. I'll link the video of his in the description so you can watch it if it's something that you're interested in. But in this clip, he offers an interesting Jewish historical perspective on the purpose of a scribe that I think you'll find fascinating. Take a listen. Uh, writing, you know, where did writing come from? Well, in, it's interesting because in the south of Iraq, in, the, in Mesopotamia, in the city of Erech, uh, which is also mentioned in the Bible, um, Gilgamesh was the king of Erech, and in there was a temple to the Queen of Heaven, who's one of these fallen angels who's had an illustrious career over you know, the course of thousands of years and continues to be very active. It seems that she's reinvented herself as Mother Mary. Anyways, so basically, she apparently, it says in the writings of Mesopotamia, that she gave 
um, the gift of writing to this group of people in that city that she took in into this temple. And they were the first scribes and they learned writing from her. Now until, and it's true, archeologists say that writing came from Uruk. That's what archeologists actually say. Before that, writing was very simple. Like, okay, this town got, you know, four barrels of beer from this one. It was kind of like just little, little statements like that. And then suddenly from the city of Uruk, we see these characters appear that are able to express much more elaborate thought. And what was the purpose of writing? Where the Mesopotamians, the early guys, the guys who gave us writing, they say the purpose of it was to actually encode the laws of the gods. And you know, that's interesting because the laws of the gods are like the codes of the matrix. They're the foundation of all the civilizations of the world, whether you go to the Indian or you go to the Persian, the Egyptian, um, you know, the, even the codes of Hammurabi that were handed down by Shams, the sun god who becomes known as Apollo by the time of the Greeks. And of course, Moses, he goes to the Mount Sinai and he receives the word of God that are written on uh, clay tablets. And the Ten Commandments out of the 613 commandments that are received, apparently the Ten Commandments are written by God's own finger. And I say apparently for your sake, not for my sake, because I believe that it's true. And so basically it's very interesting, uh, this idea that writing, it becomes the tool that captures the knowledge of the angelic world, whether it's from God and his angels or from the fallen angels, right? That does become the purpose of writing, what this Mesopotamian say. And it does appear. So if the enemy chooses to hand writing down in order to record its decrees among the nations, well, God chooses one guy, Enoch, before the flood, who Enoch says he becomes the scribe of God, right? Um, so it's interesting. Now, with the words of God be kept by Noah. If Noah actually had a document and and maybe they did add to it in the in the um, in the Dead Sea Scroll, the Qumran community, maybe they added to what they had originally received and they just kept calling it Enoch because it was in the same theme. Maybe they received other prophecies, etc. But the portion where really Enoch dealt with these fallen angels and prophesied about the second coming of the Lord and gave us all kinds of knowledge that is important for us to understand what these guys are up to in our generation and going into the book of Revelation and going to the second coming. That's why this book has made a comeback. And that's why it's preserved for us in the New Testament as a link is created to it through the canon of scripture. So it's possible that if Noah lived before the flood and Enoch had actual scripture, you know, that he was the scribe of Most High God. And we know that the words of God, they don't get lost, right? So perhaps um, they actually took this from before the flood and, and, and put it into the uh, library section of the Ark. And you might say, well, that's not in the Bible. Well, okay, I know. But it says Jude quotes a book that was written before the flood, okay? And Adam lived before the flood, right? So, and so, it, you know, it's possible that that he took it with him um, out of the flood. So that's one possibility. Possibility number one, right? Um, possibility number two. It was hedged on stone tablets, like huge ones, not just like on the ones you carry, like, you know, underneath your arm, on like, like pillars, you know, uh, in on mountainsides, on, on the land. And when the waters of the floods went down, these things were still standing there 
and were rediscovered. Now, I don't have any evidence of that, but apparently some of the dark knowledge was recorded that way uh, to be preserved. It's very interesting that the Mesopotamians believed that the purpose of a scribe was to encode the laws of the gods. So basically, God set his scribe in place to encode his laws and history to survive the flood, and then the fallen angels who exalted themselves as gods also encode their laws to carry on after the flood. It just goes to show that whatever God has, Satan creates his own counterfeit. Well, that's where we're going to end it today. I know this was a lot of information, but I hope that it was easy enough for you to follow and understand, and that the Book of Enoch has become a little more intriguing for you. Next week, we're going to detour because September the 26th kicks off the Fall Feast of Israel. Now, if you've never studied the Feast of Israel, you're in for a treat. There are seven major feasts or holy days that Israel was commanded by God to observe. Three in the spring, three in the fall, and one in between the sets. It's widely believed that Christ fulfilled the spring feast with his first coming, and that he's going to fulfill the fall feast when he comes again which makes these fall holy days very relevant for all of us who are anxiously awaiting his return. And we're going to study the first feast in depth next week. As always, if you've enjoyed today's content, please hit the subscribe button and share this podcast with a friend. We'll see you next week.